Hey, great world changers. Are you looking forward to what God has for you this morning? I'm also kind of, I just can't wait to hear what comes out of my mouth. I think it's going to be amazing. Jesus is with me. <laughs> Before I go into that, um, I want you to know with everything going on in our nation at the moment, we have churches in nearly 90 nations across the world, and our churches worldwide are praying for us and praying for South Africa. Uh, Jim LaFoon sent a prophetic word, a vision that God gave him, as well as Steve Merrill, the president of our Movement International, has sent a message. We've posted both of them on our website and Facebook. Please do go hear those words that they've got from the Lord for South Africa and for our churches in South Africa. But I, I want to say this, Pastor Jim LaFoon just said that it is through what the church does that's going to break the back of what the enemy is trying to do. And uh, the church has authority. The, the enemy <laughs> was not given authority because the gates of Hades do not prevail against the church. Amen. The church prevails against the gates of hell. And I, I felt the Lord just prompting me during worship to do something. But anyone here who is not a South African, we have been praying over every single foreign national, non-South Africans, and I know a number of people who are studying at Monash, that there is a protection on you. We've been praying over every member of this church, everyone you're related to, your friends, your family, etc. And I want us as a church to just stand and release that. Could we stand together? And I want to say to you, if you are not a South African here today, I bless you. There is a place for you. We as South Africans repent on behalf of what some are doing. This is not the Lord. This is not His plan for this nation or for you. And we declare right now protection on every single one of you. We declare right now you have a place here. God has sent you here with a purpose and a plan, and He will not let you go. He is surrounding you right now with His angels. The Lord says that I will command my angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. No harm shall befall you. No disaster come near your dwelling place, says the Lord, for I am protecting you, and I am surrounding you with favor as a shield, that everything I have spoken to you will come to pass, and you will not be hindered in any way, says the Lord. And everyone said, Amen. God bless you guys. Do not let the enemy lie to you. Amen. So thank you, Jesus. How many of you have been enjoying our Rooted series? Okay. I was thinking maybe we should hand out root beer, and, and then we realized, no, actually, it's quite costly to give root beer to everyone who comes, but uh, I do like root beer. It tastes a bit like Wacky Wicks, and that probably gives my age away. Who remembers Wacky Wicks? Yeah, come on, come on. If you want wacky wicks in a drink, that's, that's American root beer. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for this amazing church. I love this church. Thank you for what you're doing in the lives of our people, just lives being changed. We want to see your kingdom advance. We ask that you would make us the church you're coming back for. We ask that you'd speak to us. I bless, Lord, every person here today. I bless your word going forth that we would get a revelation today, a greater understanding of who you are and how you see us and how we are meant to see ourselves and others. Thank you, Jesus, that as they've made a choice to be here today, that they are going to be blessed in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Just turn to your neighbor and say, this is going to be good. Now turn to the neighbor on the other side and tell him how much you hate it when you are told to turn to your neighbor in church. I hate it. I tell you, it just gets awkward. Hey? Unless you're with your wife or your husband, it's just like, so I don't do that too much. T turn to your neighbor and say he doesn't do that much. 
<laughs> right, enough, enough, enough. <laughs> well, friends, Pastor Darling, my beautiful darling wife's been doing an amazing job just introducing our series, Rooted. And I, I don't know if you know this, Johannesburg is the biggest man-made forest in the world. And uh, when you look at Joburg as the biggest man-made forest, you have enough trees around you, we're not living in a concrete jungle, that if you look at those trees, you cannot necessarily see their roots, right? But you do know that if we took their roots away, you wouldn't be seeing the tree in a vertical position anymore. You all with me? So without being well-rooted, Joburg would be the biggest log pile in the world, I guess, man-made log pile. And, and the truth of the matter is when a tree sends out its roots, it can start with just one little tiny fibrous root and hold itself up, but the bigger it gets, the deeper and further its root system must go. This is revelation to some of you. You didn't know you were going to get a biology lesson today. And when we talk about being rooted, we're talking about the fact that if we want to go tall in God, if we want to be everything He created us to be, we need to be firmly founded in the foundational principles of the Word the foundations of what God says in the New Testament are the things we meant to build on. And I'll tell you this, as a Christian, I, I was born, I gave my life to the Lord. I prayed the prayer when I was two bicks and a Mari biscuit high. Uh, I don't know if you don't like Mari biscuits, zoo biscuit. I was two bricks and a Mari biscuit, zoo biscuit, and, and a Omar Rusk. And, and I got born again very young, but I kept falling. I kept backsliding. Anyone here has ever backslidden? You know, who's never backslidden? Who's never going to raise their hand no matter what I say? See those hands. So, I mean, because I didn't have the foundations. And I have to tell you, it was only in my late teens that I got the foundations in my life and realized, okay, so this is how you live the Christian life. And our heart is that you don't have to wait until you fall. You don't have to wait until your tree starts crying and moves to a horizontal position. We want you to have the roots firmly established. And so, Carol, last week she shared, and Acts 2.36 is kind of our root scripture for the day. Do your good act for the day and have a look at that. Um, but Peter, we all know that Peter denied Jesus, gave up on Jesus and went fishing. And uh, then Jesus gets him back, and he's kind of all over the show. But when he gets baptized in the Holy Spirit, he stands up and preaches the most amazing message. So in Acts 2, here's Peter. He's standing in front of the Jews that have come for Pentecost. Why did God wait for Pentecost? Because the Jews from every nation around would come to celebrate Pentecost in Jerusalem. So people are like, why did God wait so long to baptize them in the Holy Spirit? It's not that he waited long to baptize them. He wanted to wait for Pentecost so that all the Jews from all the nations would come. And that is why there were so many different languages there. And they get baptized in the Holy Spirit, and they stand in front of this crowd, and all of them are speaking different languages. 120 of them speaking different languages as the Holy Spirit gave them tongues. They didn't know what they were saying. They were just speaking, and yet the people who heard their language could understand them. And then they said, what is going on here? We're hearing this message in our own language, but maybe these guys are drunk. So Peter says, no, they are not drunk, and he stands up and preaches this message. And we saw the first foundation that Carol shared is that God has made this Jesus, whom you guys, by the way, crucified, not you guys, I'm pointing to the Jews. Remember, we're painting a story picture here. He's made him both Lord and Messiah. And 
it says that when they realized who Jesus was through Peter's preaching and the Holy Spirit obviously convicting them, they were cut to the heart and they said, brothers, what shall we do? This is a great question to ask when you come to a place and you realize, I'm wrong, I've missed it, there's something else that I need, and what shall I do? So won't you just say with me, what shall I do? I'm so glad you asked. I'm so, uh, in the next six hours, I will attempt to answer that question as deeply and profoundly as I possibly can. Okay, for visitors, it's not six hours. So don't worry. Don't worry. We never go more than four. Um, so they were cut to the heart. And so Peter answers and he says, guys, you must do three things. You must repent. You must be baptized. And you must receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So last week, Carol spoke, uh, the week before, Carol spoke about the fact that before you can even start, you must have the foundation that Jesus is Lord, not just Savior. I would say the majority of Christians around the world have taken Jesus as Savior, but He's not Lord. It's like, well, Jesus, you just come hang out with me and make my life better, as opposed to Jesus, I choose to die to myself and live for you. What do you tell me to do? That's the difference. And there are many, many converts and believers in this world, and the world's still a mess. We need disciples who give their lives up and say, Jesus, I will live for you and do whatever you tell me to do. And so lordship is an essential foundation. That's one that I didn't have. I had saviorship. I was going to heaven. I got my ticket, and I wondered why things were still going wrong. But then last week, Carol spoke about repentance, and it was a great message. Some people said it was one of the best they've heard all year, so repent of not listening to the podcasts. Go find them on our website. Get that one. Today, I want to talk about baptisms. The first one is repent and be baptized, and they would understand by that word that he was talking about baptized in water. And the second one, well, excuse me, we got a little carried away there. We're going back, we're going back... Uh -huh, uh -huh. The second one is receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus referred to as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So today I'm going to carry on on the two foundations, lordship and repentance, and we're going to look at baptism in the Holy Spirit and baptism in water. Is that exciting? Now, most of you here have already been baptized. So it's like, well, why do I need to hear about baptism again? Because I want to say this. I believe that baptisms are not well understood by the majority of the church. And I believe that most churches don't understand or teach the full impact of what the Bible says. A lot of people see water baptism just as some kind of ritual or symbolic tradition that we go through. Instead of understanding the power of it and why Jesus told us we need these two. So firstly, I want you to get revelation about the power behind baptisms. But secondly, our heart is not to just disciple the leaders and the rest of you receive. Our heart is to make disciples who raise disciples, right? I want you to be equipped so that when you start talking to other people and seeing them saved and bring them into church, you can talk to them about baptism. You can get them baptized in water. You can get them baptized in the Holy Spirit. Yay! Don't bring them to the pastor. I'm busy enough. If you are baptized, you can baptize others. Amen? And so what do we believe about baptism? Now, last week, Carol spoke about repentance and introduced a Greek word. Uh, I don't know how many of you enjoyed that Greek word, whether you did or didn't. I'm going to give it to you again. There it is. Uh, it is pronounced, by the way, metanoeo. Say that with me. Metanoeo. You can now pronounce a good Greek word with some good Greek pronunciation. Well done, well done. Uh, so that was last week, understanding repentance. 
Do you mind if I give you another Greek word today? Well, whether you do or not, with or without your permission, there it is. Say with me, baptizo. Oh, you guys know two little Greeks now. And the word baptizo is the word that is used for baptism throughout Scripture, whenever they talk baptism. And it literally means the following from the Strong's Greek lexicon, to immerse, to submerge, like a vessel that has sunk, and to make overwhelmed, and when they talk about overwhelmed, it is speaking about being in a solution that you get totally surrounded and wet in that solution. So if you had a ship and your ship sank, as a lot of them did in those days, by the way, then, you know, so it was like, hey, where's your ship? It got baptized. So now can you understand that this is more than just like, oh, I got a little touch. I got a little wet. There, firstly, full immersion. But when we talk about baptism of the Holy Spirit, just picture that, what that looks like. When I'm baptized in the Holy Spirit, I'm just completely like a vessel sunk in His presence. And so sometimes you've heard us as a church talk about soaking. Well, let's soak in His presence. Sometimes at the end of worship, such a presence. Let's just soak in that. That is one of the words that baptizo would be translated as, is to soak something in another substance so that it takes on that entire substance. Pretty cool. And I believe we need to baptize regularly in the presence of the Holy Spirit. So when we talk about baptisms, when we see the book of Acts, it was common practice for them. No one had to explain what baptism was. They understood. It was already for hundreds of years before a common practice amongst the Jews. It was a common practice amongst the Gentiles, the Egyptians, the Hindus, the Persians, a whole bunch of them were already using baptism as a way of getting someone into their religion and into their culture. So they understood it, but the modern day church, it's kind of weird, right? I mean, Think about this. You've never been to church. You've never read the Bible. You've never been around some of these things. And you come to church and you decide that I'm going to believe in Jesus. I'm going to take him as my Lord and Savior. And then someone says to you, all right, well, your next step is to put you underwater. We hold you down there for a bit. We bring you back up. Then we lay hands on you. We pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And you'll start speaking different language that you don't understand what you're saying. Any questions? Good, I'm glad you asked, because here's a teaching from Pastor Andrew. He did <laughs> listen to that. Hopefully you catch it. You don't have to give them the teaching. You can catch this, and you can give it to them. Amen? So when we see baptism in Acts, we must recognize that throughout Acts, throughout the letters written, and throughout early church history, the tripod foundation was always the three. Now, if you look at my, I'm just going to take a stand for a moment. If you look at my stand, it's got how many legs? Okay, good. We've got mathematicians in the house. So, well done, students. You'll pass your maths exam. If I take one of those legs away, what happens? Yes, yes. It's, if I take two of them away, I don't stand a chance, right? And so if I did that, I'd be having to preach lying down and you wouldn't see me. And I, being as good looking as I am, I want you to see me. And that's why we have three legs on our tripod. Understand that if there are three foundations that Peter said, guys, this is referred to worldwide, many people who refer to the tripod foundation of the Christian life, is that you repent when you understand the Lordship of Jesus, you get baptized in water, you get baptized in the Holy Spirit. Throughout Acts, throughout early church history, it, all three happened immediately. 
So the first thing we see, 3,000 people get saved from Peter's marvelous speech. What is the first thing they do with those 3,000 people? They get them baptized. So I don't know where the water was, but they had over, it was just 3,000 men besides women and children. They probably baptized six, 7,000 people that day. At least there were 120 of them to share the load. But it was, it was not like, okay, guys, we need to schedule a time. It was immediate. What about when Peter goes to Cornelius' house? And Cornelius is a Gentile. And they, Jesus has to speak to him, Peter, you're going to go to the Gentiles. Okay, Jesus. He gets there, and he's preaching this amazing message. And then as we read in the book of Isaiah, the Gentiles might not have known what that was. And while he's preaching, the Holy Spirit comes and baptizes them. And as Jesus is baptizing them in the Holy Spirit, they start speaking in tongues. And so Peter's like, hey guys, I haven't finished my sermon. But they're all speaking in tongues. Peter goes, so the Gentiles can also get saved. What was the first thing he did? You are now filled with the Holy Spirit. That means God has sent his gospel to the Gentiles too. So we have no other choice but to baptize you in water. They took the entire group that was meeting and baptized them. Every single time, you will see that those three go together. Paul arrives in Ephesus, and he says to the Ephesians, Hey guys, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? We didn't hear there was a Holy Spirit. What baptism did you receive? We received the baptism of John. Baptism of John was for repentance only. I must baptize you into Jesus. And he says that they baptized them in water into the name of Jesus Christ, and then he laid hands on them, and they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and started speaking in tongues. So they always go together. It's like this package deal. The church has lost some of this. I don't know if you've noticed. Like it's just enough to pray the prayer and then I'm okay. Well, praying the prayer is just one leg. And that was me most of my life. When I got baptized in water, listen, I was sprinkled as a baby. How many sprinkles do we have here today? Yeah, I was sprinkled. I was sprinkled well. Listen, I'm a twin. I was sprinkled Peter. My brother Peter was sprinkled Andrew. God ministered to our identity crisis after that. And I always was told, that's your baptism. You've been baptized. And the more I studied this stuff, and the more I started to get the foundations in my life, I realized, hang on a sec, I'm not baptized. And so I'm going to teach you some of these things, and hopefully you will leave this place understanding more of the power. We start with, the Great Commission, the last words of Jesus to his disciples. And he said, I want you to go and make converts of all the people. Right? Uh, wrong. That's wrong. Okay, listen, if you put converts down in your religious studies exam, you will fail. No, he says, go to them, therefore make... You see, disciples, they understood to be very different to someone who just believed. A disciple is someone who, in their culture... If someone became a disciple, what they said is, I give up my life, I give up my job. At times, they even gave up their families in order to follow someone, and they lived with that person and followed that person as long as needed. Disciples are different to converts. Converts are, Jesus, I believe in you, thanks. I'll go back, maybe I'll visit you sometime. The world needs disciples. So when Jesus says you make disciples, what's the first thing you do? How do we make disciples? The first thing he says, by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Well, commandments, one of the commandments that Jesus gave was that we be baptized in water. And in Acts 1.4, he commanded the disciples to be baptized in the Holy Spirit before they try to do anything else. 
Are we starting to see the package of these three working together? Okay, so when you get someone born again, remember this. Praying the prayer is just the first step. I, I, I was in hospital a little while back, and I love being around unbelievers because they, you can get them saved. I love being around believers too, but you can't get them saved. They're really saved, right? And I remember I was around a few drug addicts and just praying for them, got them filled with the Holy Spirit. They were going through withdrawals. The Holy Spirit set them free from withdrawals, just like that, instantly. And they were like, if Jesus can do that, I want to give my life to him. They get saved. Immediately, I get them baptized. And all we had was a tiny little bathtub. And we crammed. And one guy was this high. We crammed him. I had to do him twice. It was like, we're going to do the top half first. Okay, now let's slide you down. Bottom half. Okay, we, you're done. And then prayed for them to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And they were like, what are these words coming out? It just feels so amazing. You know, it's just great ministering. But when you've seen people saved, give them the whole treatment. Amen. And so now, when we talk about water baptism, like I say, for, for some people it's kind of strange. People in the, in the time of Jesus had understood baptism. They didn't have to explain it. Uh, the Jews had a type of baptism called proselyte baptism. And proselyte baptism went like this. There are a lot of people out there who believed that God was the creator of the universe, who knew that the Israelites were God's chosen people, and if they wanted to become a part of the God of the universe, then they wanted to become part of that covenant community. They wanted to become Jewish. And God wanted to allow Gentiles to come in. And so they would go through a process whereby they would be taught about Judaism, they would acknowledge, accept it, and then they said, are you ready to become a Jew? Yes, I am. We're going to baptize you. And so baptism to the Jews before John the Baptist arrived meant, I stand here in one condition. I am a Gentile. I am not a part of the Jewish community. I am not a part of you. But I choose right now to go underwater as a statement of saying, I die to my Gentileness. No, don't die to your gentleness. That is a good thing to hang on to, okay? When we baptize you, bring your gentleness back up. But I die to my gentleness. My gentleness and my old self, my old nature, my past, my history stays underwater. It is buried, and I rise up a new person. I am now a Jew. So when we listen to baptism, we must understand that that is exactly the understanding they had of baptism when John and Jesus came is that I stand here, John the Baptist said, prepare your hearts, confess your sins, and repent. So they said, I stand here a sinner. I go underwater and choose to let go of my sin, my sinful nature, my sinful acts, and I choose to rise up as someone righteous who chooses to obey the law. That was John's baptism. Okay. Now, Jesus' baptism was a little different, but let me just say that this is a guy called Matthew Warmbier. Anyone like Warmbier? Any Brits amongst us? Hey, Sammy, don't you and your peeps like warm beer? Okay, so it's, it's, a, it's a, a fallacy. So Matthew Warmbier says this, Building upon the Jewish ritual for admittance, 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 I'm just testing to see how many actual English people we have with us. For admittance to the covenant people, baptism was extended and recast as the act, both for the Jew and the Gentile, by John and Jesus, to now be able to enter the new community. Instead of being baptized into the community of the Jewish nation, we are baptized into the community of the kingdom of God through Jesus. Understand this. Baptism's not like just a tradition. Okay, we're going to get you. That doesn't make any sense. 
We must understand that water baptism is a type and a shadow and a symbol of me saying, I come here as one thing, I choose to die to that, leave it under the water, and rise up as something else. Are you all catching this? Okay, yes. Well, even if you're not, nod your heads. You will catch it by the end. So let me give you some scripture for this and tell you a little story. Can I tell you a story? Once upon a time, there was a man called Abraham. Well, it was Abram first. And Abraham was promised that he would raise up a great nation that would be God's people. If we had seven hours, I'd go through the whole thing. So we're just going to fast forward to. And then the Israelites were in captivity for 400 years in Egypt. And the people of God are in Egypt. And when we we see Moses writing the whole history of what God did in the Old Testament, he may or may not have known that we would learn a whole lot about the New Testament from it. But now in the New Covenant, Looking back after the cross, Paul says this, when we look at the Old Testament and we look at how God dealt with them in the Old Testament, that those are types and shadows of how God deals with us under the new covenant, right? So when we look, one of the greatest types and shadows and is spoken of throughout the New Testament is the type and shadow of Israel as the people of God, the church. Bible says later on in Hebrews that we are, uh, that Basically, Israel and Mount Zion are now representative of the church of Jesus Christ. And so the church, and then Egypt is a type of the world of sin, which makes Pharaoh a type of Satan. Sorry, Pharaoh, I hope you repented. And when we look at them in captivity, it's a type of saying all of us were captive to the world of sin. All of us. And while we're captive to the world of sin, Satan has a hold over our lives. And God has to send a Messiah, a Savior, to see them saved. Who was the type of Jesus, the Messiah, that came into the Israelites? Moses. You guys are good. Moses comes. He's a type of Jesus. And so when Paul talks about them becoming part of Moses as their leader, Moses, well, obviously, ten plagues. We're just going to... And then... Pharaoh says, you may let your people go. And that's the last night before Pharaoh's experienced the death of his firstborn. God says to them, guys, I'm going to let the spirit of death pass over this place. And the spirit of death will kill the firstborn of every family that doesn't have the blood of Jesus on the doorposts. Now, he didn't say Jesus. I said Jesus. But Jesus is the lamb who was slain. So it was the first type and shadow. They had to kill an innocent lamb. The lamb is a type and shadow of Jesus. And that innocent lamb's blood was shed, and they had to paint it on the doorposts of their houses. And once they painted the blood on the doorposts of their houses, it says death passed over them, so they didn't die. So the first thing is that the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of our hearts is a type and shadow of being born again by receiving what Jesus did on the cross. Right? Getting it. And then the second thing that happened that night was that in the, army, in the presence of the enemy and darkness, the firstborn was killed. That is a type and shadow of Jesus, the firstborn of God, choosing to give up his life, that the enemy, darkness, killed the only son of God so that you and I could be saved and redeemed from Egypt. And so they get saved. They're coming out of Egypt. And as they march in, it tells us there's this pillar of cloud that is leading them. 
Holy Spirit's with them. They can see the cloud. And obviously the desert's a hot place. The cloud was probably over them and giving them shade. And as they are marching, being led by this cloud, and they're celebrating, and we are free from Egypt, they get to the, dead, the Red Sea. Not the Dead Sea, the Red Sea. Although it was called the Dead Sea after all the Israelites, Egyptians were buried under it. They get to the Red Sea and it's like, hmm, hang on a sec. Uh, how do we get across this thing, right? Uh, any swimmers in our midst? They get to the Red Sea and God has to show Moses, part the water, water parts. They all pass through the Red Sea led by the cloud and they get to the other side. And as they get to the other side, not only were the Egyptians cut off, but the waters closed over the entire Egyptian army. Because as they were leaving Egypt, a type of our old selves, our old man, our old world, Egypt didn't want to let go of them. Egypt will hound you. The enemy will hound you. Your old self will hound you. You have to get it cut off. What do you think the Red Sea is a type and shadow of passing through the water of the Red Sea? Yes, water baptism. What do you think the cloud is symbolic of? Baptism in the Holy Spirit. And just in case you don't believe me, Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says to them, and he says to them, and he says to them, hmm. I might need you to change my slide from the back there. There he is. Everyone say, welcome, Moses. Glad to have you. Paul, right into the Corinthians, says, guys, I don't want you to be ignorant of this like many people are. Our forefathers were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. Therefore, they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, notice it doesn't say they were baptized in the water. They were baptized into Moses by going through the water, right? I am baptized in water. But if Moses is a type of Christ, we must understand that water baptism is I'm not getting baptized into water. I'm baptized in water into Christ. Understand, it's two different words there. If you read the words, the word in means I got in the water, which is a symbol, a type of being baptized into Jesus. Every time you read baptized in the name of Jesus. Most of the time, it is in the name of Jesus. In Acts, it's in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is not the word in. It is the word ice, which literally means into. Now, this is important for us to catch because I want you to understand that they were baptized into Moses who led them. The water dries, the water comes off, but they were still in Moses. This was a type and a shadow. In fact, the Israelites believed, unlike the Gentiles, that they never had to be baptized ever because they were already baptized into Moses through the act of the Red Sea. That's what they believed. And that is why it's only non-Jews who had to get baptized into Judaism because their baptism into Moses is what made them Jewish. So, isn't this cool? So when I say into, it means that I am baptized from a position outside of something to a position inside something. Would you agree? So we must understand that not only were they baptized into Moses, but when we get baptized, we are baptized into Jesus Christ. If you've got your Bibles with you, you can go Roman to Romans 6, but I'm going to bring it up here. Romans 6 is one of the greatest passages on water baptism. I'm just going to touch on a few of the verses. But listen to what he says. Don't you know, all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism. You guys are catching this. Into death, 
In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life. Isn't this cool? Understand the power of water baptism. This is why I got rebaptized when I started to catch the power of what needed to take place. The power of water baptism is me standing there saying, I am outside of Jesus, but I've chosen to accept him as my Lord. I therefore choose to identify in this water as I am dying. We, we don't kill you in water baptism. It's just identifying, okay? Identifying with his death, his burial. I go underwater. I bury my old nature. I bury my old self, and I rise up in newness of life. So in other words, I'm being baptized from a place of being out of Jesus to a place of being in Jesus. I'm now hidden in him. What did baptism do for the Israelites? It cut off the Egyptians, the old world of sin. What does water baptism do when you do it by faith in what Jesus is doing? Is it takes you from a position outside of him to a position inside of him where the enemy cannot touch you. And if the enemy is getting to you, it means you stepped out of Jesus and you just need to step back in because we are in him now. This is the message of the gospel. You didn't get saved just by having him living inside of you, but also by you living inside of him. And when he goes on in Romans, from verse 5, I'm go, won't you switch for me, please, Bev? So if we've been united with him in a death like his, we'll certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Talking about baptism, remember? For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, sucked up in the creepy, pulled out the drain, and we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. So water baptism, friends, was a symbolic sign and it was a covenant statement to all publicly that I'm dying to my life of sin. And I'm rising up in Jesus with a completely new nature. This is the power of water baptism. And so when I embrace that and recognize I now have a new nature, it's not about trying harder. It's not about behavior modification. It's about living out my new nature. Isn't that great? And so when talking about baptism, Paul says, therefore, he has his conclusion. Oh, sorry, Bev, you're going to need to, every time I do that, Bev, you can just. <laughs> so count yourself dead to sin, but alive in Christ Jesus. So in baptism, I, I, I commit to embracing his death. I die to my old self. I choose to embrace his resurrection life, that if anyone is in Christ, is a new creature. The old is gone, the new has come. Behold, all things are made new. Hallelujah. Rick Joyner says this about water baptism. He taught me a lot uh, about a well-known worldwide author. We can immerse a person in water as many times as we like, but it will never by itself make us partake in the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection. Water baptism only has meaning and power if we have already made the commitment in our hearts to submit our lives to God, die to our old selves, are baptized in faith knowing that God is removing unrighteousness from us and raising us up with a new nature in Christ. That's the power of water baptism. So friends, I don't know about you, but some of you might have just gone through the ritual of water baptism and not experienced the power of it because you didn't understand the revelation of water baptism. And so a lot of people get rebaptized when they hear this message. A lot of people say, I didn't know this. I just did it because I was, and it's good to do things out of obedience. But I want you to say, see that if you understand this differently, that entering into a covenant with Jesus through baptism, you might want to get baptized again 
so that you can do it in faith. The Jews did not persecute Christians or see them as Christians until they got baptized in water. A lot of places don't see you as a Christian and persecute you as a Christian, Muslim countries, until you're baptized. In, in the early church, the altar call was not the indicator that you are now a Christian disciple. Water baptism was the indicator that you are now a disciple of Jesus. So in other words, we've baptized you, you are now a disciple of Jesus. Come hang out with us, you're part of the community. Isn't that cool? And so they understood it's like a covenant. Let me give the example of a wedding. How many of you are married here? Okay. Uh, I, I saw a husband and wife couple, only one raised their hand. Um, you may want to talk afterwards. But friends, how many of you, when you got married, had a wedding ceremony? Yes! How many of you would understand this? I can have the most glorious wedding ceremony, and in that ceremony I make certain vows, I make a covenant. Marriage is the only New Testament covenant outside of our covenant with Jesus Christ. And Ephesians tells us that marriage is a type and shadow of our covenant with Jesus. So that is, that is the covenant. Marriage is a covenant for life. We understand that. Most of the world doesn't. 50% of most marriages, of most, 50% of marriages end in divorce. Christian, non-Christian, because I can have this amazing wedding ceremony, but unless in my heart I have died to my way of wanting to do things, my desire for what my spouse should be like, and choose to say, I'm entering in till death do us part to work through everything, no matter what, we're not going to separate. Carol and I have been through some stuff. I'm sure there's many times she thought I married the wrong man. I've never thought that. <laughs> you can have wonderful ceremony, but if that ceremony doesn't actually have the commitment to that covenant in your heart, the ceremony is useless. Are you hearing me? You can go through water baptism as a tradition, as a ceremony, and it will be meaningless unless in your heart you've made the covenant to die to yourself and become one with Jesus. And that's why the Bible uses baptism as the new sign of covenant. What was the Old Testament sign of covenant? If you wanted to become part of God's people, you had to be circumcised. Circumcision was seen in the culture as a cutting away of the flesh. So circumcision was the sign of the covenant. You want to be a Jew, you get circumcised, right? Abraham, all the way through. Even Moses. We see that God come in, he's going to kill the son of Moses because Moses' son wasn't circumcised. Moses wasn't raised in Israel. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant. Now God says there was a type and a shadow of water baptism. Won't you change the slide, please, Bev? Colossians 2 is a great scripture, and I want you to catch this. He's talking about baptism. In Jesus, you were circumcised. In not the putting off of physical flesh, but the sinful nature. Not a circumcision done by the hands of men, but by Christ. You were buried with Him in baptism. Raised with Him through your Faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. So friends, I believe a lot of people that will go through the ceremony of baptism but don't have the faith in their heart to recognize that God is bringing me into covenant. When I get baptized, what it is then is it's like acknowledging and signing the covenant. Amen? Catching that? And so it was the sign of covenant. And you can see just as a Jew... If you read Kings, you'll see it. They could be circumcised and be living completely rebellious lives. I could go through water baptism. It means nothing to me. I haven't died to self. I haven't risen to Jesus. I haven't embraced covenant with him. 
Same thing. So unless you go through water baptism recognizing what it's doing, the power has not brought that victory. Now, a lot of you who were sprinkled, how many of you have been told that was your baptism? Now, I was told that, and I had to get the revelation. So do you mind if I just quickly touch, thank you, Bev, on, on baptism of babies? Is that okay? I, I'll just give you a moment to take a picture of that because first service asked for that. Nowhere in Scripture do we see baptism of babies. Where it came from is in the early church, they were teaching, not the early church, it was when the Catholic um, kind of Christendom was established through the Catholic church. They were teaching that you had to be baptized in order to be saved, so you were baptized into the Catholic church to go to heaven. Now the parents said, what about my children? They're not baptized. So they were baptizing babies. And full immersion. Baby down underwater, baby drown underwater, and babies were literally drowning. So they were like, we can't do this anymore, so they invented sprinkling. So the babies wouldn't drown. But there are a few things you must understand the Bible says. Mark 16, Jesus said, he who believes must be baptized so he will be saved. He who believes. Can a baby believe in Jesus? In fact, in Acts 2, you saw it. Peter said, repent, then be baptized. Can a baby repent? Baby can't repent. We see Peter, uh, Philip after he's been zapped out of ministry into the Ethiopian eunuch. But he's with the Ethiopian eunuch, right? And the, Ethiopia, the Ethiopians, there was a Jewish community of Ethiopians. He was there reading Isaiah. And as he's reading about Jesus, the prophecy about Jesus, Philip hears him and Philip goes in and starts talking to him about who Jesus is. And they're driving past and it says, he says, there's a pool of water. What is there to stop me from being baptized? And Philip answers him in verse 37, and he says, If you believe with all your heart, you may be baptized. What came first? Believe. The eunuch answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Then Philip baptized him, and he went on his way rejoicing. So can we understand babies can't do that? It's not adult versus infant baptism. It's believer's baptism. The moment a child is old enough to believe in Jesus, receive him as Lord of their lives, they're ready to be baptized. For my children, that was what, six? <laughs> Why? Because they'd been baptized in the Holy Spirit and were speaking in tongues. So I figured if in Cornelius' household, they spoke in tongues, they got baptized. Six isn't too old, they're too young because they're already baptized in the Holy Spirit. So when we look at this word baptizo for both baptism in water and the Holy Spirit, I want you to understand that there is a change of nature that has to come from the baptism process. Uh, there's two words that they use. Bapto, they've used to baptize baby, means to dip. But the word baptizo is different. There was a guy called Nakanda in 200 BC who wrote a pickle recipe. How many of you like pickles? And he said in order to make pickles, you bapto the pickle in hot water first, which means to dip. And then he says you baptizo it in vinegar. The word bapto meant to dip something temporarily and it's not changed by that process. The word baptizo implied it is completely transformed through the process of baptizoing. So when I make a pickle, it goes in a, gherkin, a, a cucumber and the baptizoing of a cucumber turns it into a gherkin. So I'm a Christian. I go into baptizo as an unbeliever, as someone who's just started my journey with Jesus. I go in and I say, I am a 
sinner, I'm turning my back on it, and I get baptized and I come out, new nature in Jesus. It was the same word they used to dye cloth. I go in a black cloth, I come out a red cloth, or a white cloth, I come out a red cloth, you know? Permanent change. Same thing with baptism in the Holy Spirit. When I'm baptized, something changes. Baptism in the Holy Spirit, I'm going to quickly just give you some things. Oh, sorry, Bev. Click. So Jesus, he comes to his disciples. They've been baptized in water. They've heard everything. They've moved in miracles. He breathes on them, says, receive the Holy Spirit. They're born again. Click. Then he tells them in Acts 1 verse 4, guys, I know I told you about reaching the nations, etc., but don't do anything until you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. So in Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes on them. You know the story. Tongues of fire divide on them. 120 of them in the upper room, and they all start speaking in other tongues as the Holy Spirit enabled them. Say speaking in tongues. The Bible talks about the fact that some spiritual things are foolishness to those who don't believe. Water baptism and baptism in the Holy Spirit may sound like foolishness to those who don't believe. But to us, it is the power <laughs> of the Holy Spirit changing our lives. You do not need to be baptized in water or the Holy Spirit in order to be saved. You need them to live the saved life. The thief on the cross with Jesus could not get off the cross and get baptized in water and the Holy Spirit. But Jesus turned to him and said, because you believe in me, because of your repentant words, you will be with me in paradise today. So it's not in order to be saved and skip the second death. It's in order for us to, on this earth, have the ability to live free from the sin nature and full of the power of God to do what he's called us to do. So very quickly, you can take a picture of this table. The times that we see in Acts where the Holy Spirit came and baptized people. Thank you, Bev. Pentecost, what happened? They spoke in tongues. Philip with the Samaritans. Simon the sorcerer. He's with them. He gets baptized. Peter and John come, they lay hands on them, and Simon the sorcerer sees something happen, so much so that he says, I'll pay you money to do this. Doesn't say they spoke in tongues and prophesied, but they must have been doing something exceptional for a sorcerer to say, I'll pay for that. There's always a manifestation, there's always an outbreak, and throughout Scripture we see that that is tongues and prophecy. Saul's baptism... He was prayed for by Ananias. He was baptized in water. And later on, he says, when I was baptized in the Holy Spirit, and I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Cornelius' house, the preaching of the word, Holy Spirit just came and fell on them and they were baptized in the Holy Spirit and started speaking in tongues and praising God. We see the example of the Ephesians when Paul gets to Ephesus that I mentioned. What baptism did you receive? Baptism of John. He baptized them in water into the name of Jesus. He laid hands on them, baptized in the Holy Spirit. And what happened? Spoke in tongues and prophecy. So as I'm closing, I want you to know that the most common manifestation of being baptized in the Holy Spirit throughout Scripture is that everyone gets to speak in tongues. There used to be a teaching out there that only a few people get to speak in tongues. I have prayed for literally thousands of people, I've lost count, to be baptized in the Holy Spirit and every single one of them without exception speaks in tongues. Why tongues? It's a prayer language. It helps you. Romans 8, we don't know what we ought to pray. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness, and he moans and groans with words, with, with moans and groans that our words cannot express. I don't understand what I'm saying when I'm praying in tongues, but I know the Holy Spirit's praying on my behalf, moans and groans that my human words could not express. 
When you pray in tongues, you build up your faith, the Bible says. When you pray in tongues, you release the other gifts of the Holy Spirit that came with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so tongues is like a sign of the power that resides in you. Acts 1.8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you to be witnesses. There is power to do more than just speak in tongues. But how many of you had a kettle where you put that little whistle on there and, you know, kettle's boiling. It's kind of like tongues. A lot of people think, oh, I'm baptized in the Holy Spirit, i got tongues. Tongues is powerful, but it's like the whistle that says there's boiling water under there. And the more I speak in tongues, the more I release more steam. I release more of the power. Don't think that it's just tongues that i got. Tongues is the sign. Tongues is the stirrer. Tongues is the gateway to release the gifts of the Holy Spirit in your life through baptism of the Holy Spirit. Pray in tongues often. Pray in tongues as often as you can. When you wake up, pray in tongues. When you're in the shower, pray in tongues. When you're driving your car or your motorbike, pray in tongues. Or your bicycle or walking, pray in tongues. So if you're here today and you're not baptized in the Holy Spirit or you baptized in the Holy Spirit, you don't speak in tongues, we want to pray with you. We want to get you released. We want you experiencing the fullness of what the Holy Spirit has for you. I was raised thinking, if I get prayed for and I speak in tongues, how do I know it's not tongues of demons? That's, that's the kind of stuff I was taught. And Jesus said this, click. He didn't say click. The click was for... He said, guys, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, gives him a snake instead, or an egg, who's going to give him a scorpion? So if you as parents who are evil now to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who just ask? Some people are like, oh, I need to wait, I need to fast, I need to travel. No, he's a gift. You don't work for gifts. Jesus paid the price. The Holy Spirit is your gift to you. And he said, how much more will God give the Holy Spirit if you just ask so all we're going to do when we pray for you is just let you ask lord jesus baptize me in the holy spirit it's that simple and then we're going to help you be released in your tongue language and when i was a a good well-behaved methodist young man and i got around the only charismatic church in town at the time rhema was about 200 people and they prayed for me and they prayed for the baptism in the holy spirit i was like Okay, does the Holy Spirit just grab my tongue? You know, I was waiting for... And they said, no, actually, you need to take the first step of faith and speak out loud because unlike in the other olden days, the mind has been raised, academia has been raised, our mind gets in the way, so we have to get our mind out of the way. Because when you pray in tongues, the Bible says your mind is unfruitful, it doesn't know what you're saying. So to get help, when you're praying for people to get released in speaking in tongues, help them get the mind out of the way So if the mind's going to be unfruitful and release the Holy Spirit, then I say, don't speak in your language. That'll just activate your mind. Start to speak words that you don't know. This is what they said to me. And I do this every time. But you, to release tongues, you must speak out loud words you don't know. And the Holy Spirit takes over. That sounded weird to me, but it works. And so I was, okay. They said, like a baby, just go, Okay, that's exactly how it happened. It was like, I'm not making this up. I don't know how to make this up. If you're not baptized in the Holy Spirit, you're not released in speaking in tongues, we want to pray with you afterwards, okay? Can I ask you to stand? I want to.